Well, good day, everybody. I'm Jack, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and I'm sober and clean today, thanks to the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, to which I owe my entire existence, I think, at this point, it's fair to say, and it's been a great IDAA for me, again, yet again. Wonderful discovery. I guess, uh, you know, having been... Uh, uh, asked to talk about my spiritual odyssey and thinking about it and listening to everybody else. My story is not very different to anybody else's. The disease of alcoholism and addiction is just the same as in Australia as it is in America. And the recovery is just the same as it is in the United States. I guess uh, from my early background... The, the interesting thing to me now is that there was no, well, I come from a large family, there was no cases of alcoholism or drug addiction anywhere in the family, either horizontally or vertically. No cousins, no grandparents or great aunts or anything like that. I, and I had three siblings and none of those have any evidence of addictive disease. I just seemed to be a, a mutant in the Warhaft family. I guess my upbringing was fairly standard. Uh, I was the eldest of four, as I said, uh, son of uh, an immigrant Jewish father and a, an Australian-born Jewish mother. We were not a religious family, but we were very much cultural Jews and we uh, were very conscious, very active in the... My parents were very active politically and socially in the community, but when we opened the fridge there was bacon and eggs. So it was that sort of background that I think is quite common here too. Uh, the family in which I was raised was not at all religious and in fact uh, I think it's fair to say that it was an agnostic household and uh, although I was given the benefit of some days you know, religious instruction and so on, uh, I'd never really uh, had any deep meaning for me. Even my bar mitzvah was relatively well, well it, was, it was a ceremonial occasion rather than a religious or spiritual event for me. <clears throat> Apart from that, I can't think of anything else special in my early days that would um, would predict what was to become of me. I was very good at school academically, but I had major problems in two areas uh, that I th- thought should have been important. I was... Not very good at sport, no matter how hard I tried. I was, I was not the athletic or strong sort of type, and that bothered me. And I was fearful of the opposite sex. I was absolutely fearful of, of women. I really, or girls, I, I, I really wanted to relate to them, but I didn't know where to start or how to start. And they are the things that I recall of being very strong influences me, on me as a teenager. I got to the University of Melbourne at an early age and started my medical career and it was halfway through that first year that somebody, a friend of mine, we'd been playing lacrosse in the Melbourne winter of all things and a friend of mine said, uh, can I give you a lift home? I didn't have a licence and he was very grateful on the back of his motor scooter and he said, look, we'll just stop at the pub on the way home and I think I was about 17 at the time I'd never bothered about alcohol, I'd never given it a thought. We had wine on the table for ceremonial occasions and, you know, the New Year and the Passover and all that stuff, 
weddings and so on, but I'd never ever given it any thought. My parents were very modest. My mother didn't drink at all. She didn't like the stuff. And my dad would have a scotch every night when he came home from work, but I never saw him have two. So it was just a non-event in my life until then. But we stopped at that hotel, on the pub on the way home, and I had a glass of beer. And I tell you, for the first time in my 17 years, one glass of beer made me feel good. A couple of days later, after it was a Friday morning, and at morning tea time between lectures, I went over the road on my own to the pub and had three pots of beer. And I felt terrific. I had discovered something. And you know, I don't know to this day what it's like to drink socially. I do know, do not know what it's like to have a drink to go with a meal or to be social with friends or a romantic bottle of champagne on a Sunday morning with your girlfriend or your wife or whatever. I've no concept of that because I never did it. I was saying to my friend Greg that I was browsing through uh, a book on alcoholism, uh, uh, controversies on alcoholism book, and, and, and there's a quote of uh, our friend uh, Stanton Peel, who uh, who believes that this recovery is all a lot of nonsense. And he says, of course, it takes a long time for alcoholism to develop. I thought, my God, you know, he's never interviewed me. It took me <laughs> it took me five minutes. <laughs> So I then embarked on six years of uh, medical school, which was really like, it was good to hear Mark share before the break. Uh, it was just, every time I drank was to get drunk. The only thing that altered was the frequency. It was, was it once a week? Was it once every ten days? And then it became twice a week. And so on. And I knew that I was different to all the other students because we could all go around to the pub on a Friday night after lectures Sometimes at lunchtime, we used to have this thing Friday lunchtime, we'd go up to the men's lounge and we'd flip a coin and if it landed heads, we'd go to the billiard room and if it landed tails, we'd go to the pub and if it stood on edge, we'd go to the lectures. So, but, so, uh, we'd, there'd always be out of 30 or 20 or 30 of us that'd go down to the hotel, there'd always be two or three that'd get drunk. The other two would alternate, but I was always consistently drunk. And I couldn't understand it. And this is what happened. And of course, I did some terrible things as a student, but you get away with them, because especially in the 60s, uh, you know, students were expected to do stupid things, and, and uh, you could manage, you could get by. No, even, even terrible things you could get by. And uh, of course, there weren't the stringent driving laws that we have today, and stuff like that, like crashed cars and things. Never got charged, not with drunken driving. And um, But when I graduated, that was, that's, that was the rub. Because as a doctor, you were expected to be responsible. And it was the constant hangovers, and it was the knowledge. We used to work every second night and every second weekend. And of course, the nights that I was off and the weekends that I was off, I was tanked. And, you know, I just thought it was normal to chunder every morning. I thought it was normal to take bucket loads of, of, of codrol, which is our codeine preparation that we get over the counter in Australia. And I just thought that was normal. I didn't know what it was like. And after two years of doctoring and, and of residency, um, I just knew that I, I was virtually unemployable. I, I, I had enough. I knew there was something wrong, and I didn't know what it was. So I did the mother of all geographicals. I went down to the Antarctic for a year, and 
one of the reasons, I think, well, certainly there was a, there was an element of curiosity and, and adventure to go down there, because in those days it was still part of the intrepid era, back in 1964. Um, but there was also that element, if I got a long way away from alcohol, maybe I wouldn't drink so much. Maybe that'd be the cure. I knew that alcohol had something to do with my problems. So, uh, of course, I got down there and I used to brew my own and I used to use the medicine, the, the surgery alcohol. We had so many gallons of surgical alcohol and I, I mean, I, I got round it. I used other drugs. I'd never bothered much about other drugs because alcohol did everything I wanted a drug to do. And, uh, it wasn't until the end of 1965 that I was writing up my Antarctic research work at Sydney University that I became completely a mess and unemployable and uh, I was on the point of being... I knew I couldn't do clinical work. I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life because you, you couldn't work in the state that I was in. And uh, in desperation, I looked up the, uh, after the, a terrible binge and a hangover and, and the whole bit, uh, and my girlfriend at the time threatening to leave me to go home to Melbourne, I, I looked up the Sydney phone book and I looked up alcohol. I thought there must be something that you know that could help me. And... Uh, there, were, there was an entry for Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't want to have anything to do with that mob, you know, the sand shoes and greatcoat crowd. Uh, underneath it was the Alcoholism Clinic, the Langdon Clinic in Sydney. Now, that looked far more appropriate to my needs. It was about half past ten on a Thursday morning, and I rang the uh, clinic, and I said, look, my name is Dr. Warhaft. Could I speak to the medical director, please? And they put me through, and it was a bloke called Dr. Salomon. And he said, what can I do for you? And I said, look, I've got a colleague who's really, really sick with alcohol, can I make an appointment for him to come and see you? And he said, sure, when would you like him to come? I said, how would 20 minutes from now do? And I was around there telling him my story. And uh, it was the first time in my life that I was able to say, to, to, to honestly tell somebody exactly how much I drank and the pattern of drinking, the amount of drinking and so on and so forth. And... Um, I felt this tremendous relief, you know, that I'd been... And I said, do you think I'm an alcoholic? He said, I'm not going to answer that question. He said, you seem to be a reasonably intelligent young man. You've told me the story. It's what you think that's important. And I said, I guess I am. And, you know, that was the relief, which lasted for about 30 seconds, and I recalled that the prognosis was disastrous. You know, I'd been told that as a medical student. There was nothing you can do. He said, I want you to go to an outfit called Alcoholics Anonymous starting tonight... That was the mob I didn't want to go to. He said, I want you to go four times a week and I want you to come to my group therapy sessions once a week and come and see me in a fortnight. I remember going to the Ramsgate meeting in Sydney that night, being petrified, and look, you know, the rest is uh, sort of, uh, uh, you've heard it all before. I heard the experience, strength and hope of, of other alcoholics that had recovered or in recovery, and I couldn't believe it. And I thought, you know, I couldn't believe it, even though it worked for them. But they kept saying, they said, keep coming back, and I did. I went back to see Salomon two weeks later. I said, look, I don't need your groups, but this AA thing's all right. I'll keep doing that. And he was pleased, and and that's where that was left. You know, it was just remarkable. I'd never been two weeks in my life without a drink, or, you know, since the age of about 17. And... uh, I'd love to say I wouldn't have had a drink from that day to this. That was in 1965, but it didn't quite work out that way. I, I did have a remarkable, a remarkable early recovery. After three or four months from being unemployable, I was able to get the last anesthesiology re- residency that I 
available, I think, in the country, and I embarked on a career of anesthesiology, which has served me very nicely over my life. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've had my ups and downs in recovery, though. After two and a half years of sobriety, uh, I, I'd shifted from that stage from Sydney to Melbourne, and, and, and I'd, been, I'd gotten married, I'd had a couple of kids, and I just felt that, thank you very much, AA, for showing me how to get sober. But I know how to stay sober now. I'm, I'm intelligent enough. I know the tricks. I know what you do. You go a day at a time. You don't pick up the first drink and all this stuff. But AA down in Melbourne wasn't the same and I had lots of reasons for not going. And of course the inevitable happened. It didn't happen in two weeks or two months. It took about six months. But one day I picked up a pot of beer. And of course we all know what happens. And oh, there's another little thing here too. I was never really completely drug-free in the sense that I now know it is important to be. You see, we had this business in Australia of, or still have, of over-the-counter codeine, and I didn't really regard that as a drug, and I used to have, you know, the eight milligram tablets, I suppose, like 30 or 40 in a day was, you know, nothing. And, uh, and, and a little bit of Valium, I mean, that was good to ease the, ease the pain of, of, of the transition to uh, abstinence from alcohol. And this went on right from the early recovery. And it didn't, I still don't know that it impaired me that much, but it certainly wasn't good for my psychological approach to recovery. But I kept going to me. Now, the, the other thing that was lacking was the, the spiritual approach. As I said earlier, I came from an agnostic background and I was a committed, when I say committed, I was agnostic myself. And it was the, I had never a problem with the first step. From, the, from the, my first meeting in 1965 to, to right now, I have never had a problem uh, with step one of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I identified with it and it describes my state. My life was unmanageable, I was powerless, and that's it. But step two, what a hurdle for an agnostic. And of course I read the chapter in the big book and I, and I talked to people and I, I spent hours, you know, days agonising about it and I couldn't quite get it to work. But they said keep coming back and I kept coming back and by and large if I, I found that if I attended meetings that it seemed to work in spite of myself. It was when I stopped going to meetings that the relapse was set up and then I had two and a half years of relapsing but this was a bit different. I was an anaesthetist, anaesthesiologist by this stage and, um, and so of course... Uh, you can't really give an anaesthetic while you're under the influence of alcohol, but if you take uh, uh, amphetamines, and I took plenty, I discovered uh, amphetamines and then and barbiturates, and I used to have this little, you know, up in the morning and down in the afternoon caper, and the doses got bigger and bigger, and uh, the computers at the chemists, there were no computers in the chemists in those days, so I had a bit of difficulty. They never ever caught up with me, but I used to prescribe my own uh, drugs and so on. And after a couple of years of that, I went. I, I started drinking heavily again and uh, ended up in detox, which I'd never ha- had to do before. I had two detoxes in 1970. Got well, got back into AA. Had ten and a half years of sobriety with the Valium and the cocaine. But but I mean, my life was going well. I mean, I had teen, you know the kids were growing up. I had the big house and the cars and the you know, the good anaesthetic practice and all the rest, it was all going well. Uh, and then uh, in 1980, uh, it got unstuck again. Mind you, it wasn't helped by the fact that I had an affair with a nurse at one of the hospitals. And I was to find out later from an older member of AA who had been through all this himself, he said, Jack, you 
we alcoholics, we can't live with guilt. And that's what I'm sure was one of the key things that caused my relapse at the end of 1980 and the beginning of 1981, that I couldn't live with the lie of, of being deceitful to my wife and to my family and to myself. And um, that was a lesson that I, that, uh, it was a painful lesson that I hope I just never, ever forget. I cannot live with guilt to this day. And uh, so on it went. Another period of sobriety commenced in 1981. And um, after a couple of years, one day we tried our best to patch up the marriage uh, and made a reasonable fist of it for a while at least. And one day my wife uh, rang me up. She used to take a Rohypnol. Now, I don't, I don't know whether it's nitrazepam or fluazepam. It's one of these very ultra-short-acting... Uh, uh, benzos, the, the date rape drug. She used to have one at night to get her off to sleep. And I don't blame her living with me. <laughs> and um, she she rang me and said, look, could you pick up a, a packet of Rohypnol on the, uh, the chemist on the way home? And I said, sure. And, and I did. And I, and I was in the chemist and I thought, let's have two. So I could have one too. And I took one there and then. And I tell you, that started a seven-year career on Rohys that became a love affair. I mean, I was getting them in industrial doses. Um, just I couldn't believe what a great drug they were and somehow or other I managed to keep my anaesthesia happening and I suppose I was being pretty careful not to take too much during the day and uh, in 1989 at the age of 50 I crossed a line that I was never going to cross I just picked up a syringe of what you call Demerol what we call Pethidine one day and uh, thought well this would be something worth a try I'm a, you know I've been Really, uh, my life is so tough, poor me, having to put up with so many things uh, that had gone wrong in my life and uh, having problems in my domestic life, problems with my, my financial affairs were a mess. I mean, my, the whole, the wheels were coming off completely and I just I was working at the dental hospital and I went into the men's room and gave myself an intramuscular shot of Demerol. Two hours later, I did it again. It was a Friday. The whole weekend, I obsessed about this stuff, and on the Monday, that's when I started the intravenous use. I mean, you know, get real, you can't go injecting, you know, intramuscular all the time. And then I became a proper addict. At the age of 50, that's not a pretty sight. And uh, that went on for 21 months, until finally, uh, a couple of detoxes later. Uh, and when I say detoxes, it's a bit different in Australia. You know, you you get into detox because you get your wife or somebody takes you there straight from the restaurant where you happen to get comatose. That was the first one. <coughs> and it's nothing to do with the medical board. They didn't even know about it. And I mean, I was in there for a week and I was I came out promising to be a good boy, but six months later, right at the end of my using, it was a I remember it was July the 31st, 1992, and uh, <coughs> I'd been using Demerol all day. I think it had about eight or nine hips of 100 milligrams, and and I had a couple of rowies to just to sort of you know smooth it out. And then uh, somehow I got stuck into the booze. And thank God I got stuck into the booze because that's the thing that really brings me undone. And I went to a party with the operating theatre nurses, and I don't remember anything beyond about midnight. All I remember is waking up about 18 hours later, vomiting blood with the foot of the bed on my blocks, uh, foot of my bed on blocks, and I was in a hospital somewhere. Uh, 
and I just wanted to die. And I just, I thought, you know, I can't go on like this. There's no hope for me. I really, I had lost hope at that stage. And uh, at this stage I'd remarried and my, my new wife, Deirdre, who usually comes in, she's not here this year, sadly, um, she, uh, she supported me by <coughs> telling fibs to the uh, hospitals at which I worked and that, that I'd broken my leg and that, which I had, I'd cracked my fibula along the way and, and that uh, I needed time off work and reluctantly I allowed them to extend my stay from one week to three or four weeks. And it was on about the fifth day, um, we were having morning tea and I was sitting there in my dressing gown next to the council, I was still physically very, very ill and mentally and spiritually the whole lot and I said, look, I don't know what's going to become of me. He said, look Jack, he said, if you're prepared to go to any lengths, you'll get this thing. Are you prepared to go to any lengths? And I, somehow, for some reason, at that point I made a decision. I could see a very distinct fork in the road. One, one side led to death. I had no doubt that it was going to be suicide and I was so depressed. And I've gotten to the stage now that this is so true of me and I'd, and I'd been to so many psychiatrists. So in the previous year or two, I'd, of course I'd never told any of them about the true story about my drinking or drug taking, but I'd been to so many psychiatrists for, for depression and I'd been on lithium, I'd been on, on Cinequin, I'd been on uh, Tryptanol and I was one of the first people to go on Prozac and they, they, you know, the whole thing. And, and of course this was the most intense depression I'd ever had. So one fork was death and the other fork was you know, go to any lengths and you might get well. And I decided fortunately to take that, uh, that other fork in the road and I started to hit meetings. From the detox, I used to ask them, can I get a cab to another meeting and, you know, can I do meetings that weren't even on the roster? And the only other thing I did, I switched my main, gradually, not immediately, instead of, I started off doing five or six AA meetings a week and one or two NA. And gradually the balance went towards NA. I just felt more comfortable in Narcotics Anonymous in Australia. It was easier for me to identify with other people that had narcotic problems and problems with uh, other drugs other than the alcohol. And it was a program of total abstinence. And my view of AA at that time, at that time, and all those years was that, that, other, that, that uh, benzos and codeine and narcotics they were an outside issue as far as AA was concerned and that, you know, AA doesn't have an opinion on outside issues. That was my <coughs> way of justifying that behaviour. Uh, I've since learnt that the AA thinks nothing of the sort, that recovery uh, implicitly and explicitly implies abstinence from that sort of behaviour. Um, well, from I, I, I got out of... Detox after a month, still not reported to the medical board and I don't know why but thank God they didn't because back in 92 uh, they were still pretty punitive in our state and I, I'm one of these people that so much of my persona was interlinked with being a doctor, I don't know how well I would have stood it, I might have, I was that depressed, it might have been the last straw but I wasn't and I thought well I've just got to do my best and I went to NA and they said do 90 and 90 and I did and at the end of 90 days they said well how about another 90 and 90 and I did that. Well I did a meeting a day for a year and and uh, I, st I started to really love my recovery and I, I was bewildered by the whole thing and still having trouble with steps two and three but I was able to get through that. I was actually able to get through step with all my agnosticism 
I don't know whether I used mental gymnastics or what I did, but as long as I can use the words higher power all the way through the steps, I'm okay because I know there are forces that influence my life over which I have no control. There are forces for the evil or for the bad, not the evil, the bad, like the alcohol, the drugs and that sort of behaviour, and there are forces for the good. And it's those forces for the good, I mean, that, that higher power that, that influences me, I've, I've had so many ways over the last nine years of viewing that power. I'm still not religious. I can't become religious unless something, well, I shouldn't say I can't become religious. There has never been anything about religion that has personally attracted me. But I don't have to be religious. I know that now. I've only got to have faith, and it doesn't have to be a religious faith. It can be just, it's just faith in a power, and as the NA book says, it's, it's got to be loving, caring, and greater than myself. And that's all it has to be. And that power exists. It exists right here in this room. It exists right here in new people. And it exists right here in the program and the literature and everything else. And uh, that's what's happened over the over the last nine years. I've just plugged away at that and tried to develop it, and it's been a pretty rocky road in terms of my emotional recovery. I've never had any drugs at all. I'm a really fundamentalist on that. I mean, I, I've, I've cracked my back at one stage when I fell off a horse and I busted ribs, and I've still not had anything stronger than a paracetamol or an aspirin. Um, I, I'm just so fearful of. of uh, of drugs for me that I try and avoid everything, but you know, so that side of it's been all right. I still occasionally get the thought goes through my head that you know a bit of morphine or a bit of alcohol would be good, but it, it goes right through my head. It never sits there. I am very conscious of the fact that I've got to pay close attention to my recovery on a on a daily basis. Um, and it was alluded to earlier by Jim, Jim Roach. Uh, same thing. I, I don't believe that length of sobriety offers me any protection, especially. It's quality that I've got to go for to try and get some sort of resistance. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I do seem to be doing enough so far that these thoughts, whenever they do occur, they swiftly throw, flow through my brain and they never, ever sit there. And that's the way I'd like it to be. I'm one of these people that does believe that alcohol and other drugs are still an issue for me. I don't care whether it's nine months, nine weeks or nine years. For Jack, this is the reason I keep coming back, primarily, because I don't want to relapse. I regard the emotional and spiritual progress, any that I might make, or the development in that area, as being very important. The uh, and, 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 it's a, and it's a, you know... On, on that basis alone, every meeting is worthwhile. But it's still the drugs are the big issue for me, and including alcohol, of course. And of course, the most exciting—well, sorry, one of the many, one of the more exciting things—has been my introduction to IDAA. I didn't know about this. I was a year clean in Melbourne in 1993, and the head of a department of a very big public hospital in Melbourne. Uh, the head of the anesthesiology department had had a, an anaesthetist die there as a result of uh, opiates, opiate overdose and uh, he decided that he should take an interest in this area and he gave a lecture on, on the subject at a meeting of the Australian Society of Anesthesiologists and I went up to him after the meeting and I said, uh, 
look, you know, I mean, I've been through this, and I'm a year and a bit clean, and so on. I showed him a Narcotics Anonymous emblem, which I always wear, and and, um, and we had a bit of a chat about it. And he said, oh, he said, I've just come back from the American Society meeting, and I met a bloke called Jerry M. from California. He said, why don't you get in touch with him? They seem to have some big meeting of doctors every year over there that are in recovery. So I did that, and I went to Atlanta in 94, and I've been coming every year since except one, and I love it. And uh, as I've said a couple of times here, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has been the, one of the great exports that uh, the Americans have uh, delivered to us Australians. And for that I'm forever grateful. And, uh, and of course, the, the doctor's meeting was... Uh, and look, from that, we have developed from nothing, in a, and there have been a couple of other doctors have come over at various times from Australia to this meeting. This has given us the, the way in to forming the Australian Doctors in Recovery groups. There's one in Sydney and there's one in Melbourne. We have a national convention every year, and I'm hoping you'll... Look, two of the speakers this afternoon, Jim and uh, Sheila, have both been down to Australia, and I'm sure that uh, we're hoping to get Mark, the third one, to come down. Uh, you're all welcome. I want to see you down there. Coogee in Sydney in March. So we've developed all that, and this is all due to IDAA. And now we've got our... Uh, uh, Victorian Doctors Health Program established. I mean, isn't that wonderful? What a, how much gratitude have I got? And not only me, all the recovering doctors in Australia, and I see by down there, there's several of you have been to our meeting. It's just wonderful to see you. How much gratitude we've got for the existence of IDAA to know that there is life after almost death. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, people, Sometimes say, oh, I get sick of all this hearing about gratitude and, and, you know, the emotional this and that and the other. I'll tell you what. Why, how could I not be grateful? This program has given me my life back, never mind my career, my self-esteem, my ability to um, lead a normal life in other respects. Um, all due to the program of the 12 steps of the two fellowships that I've had the great pleasure of being associated with all this time. And I'll tell you what, I honestly believe the, the best is yet to come. I'm 61 years of age and the best is yet to come. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. A couple quick announcements. Saturday night meeting in here will be 20 minutes after the dinner or 10 o'clock, whichever is the closest. Those of there's some people here I know that have some license problems. So Sunday morning at 7 o'clock, the early bird meeting, there's a man named Tony Kay that has had some experience. He might come and listen to that. Uh, Jack, just remind me, he talked about his instant alcoholism, having one beer and running getting three more. The man's not here now, but this might be his message if... This, this was an MD that had 11 years of sobriety, and he went to the dentist, and he had some oral surgeon, surgery be done, and the guy asked him if he wanted some nitrous. He'd never had that, and he said, well, sure. So he had a little dental work done, and the next day he knew he had to have some more, so he ran back to the dentist and had some more dental work done and got some more nitrous. The third day he went back to the dentist's office, ran in, and hooked himself up. <laughs> so this is to warn you about these things. We're all addicts. Next speaker here is Jim T. Good afternoon. My name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic. Well, I'm glad to be here. 
and uh, it's an honor to be here at IDAA. Uh, I certainly identify with his story quite a bit, you know. Uh, I think some of the things that, that, the reason why I'm here are some things that have never left me. Number one is evidence that I've took this chairman's position, you know, for next year's, uh, the Palm Springs conference. When they said, would you like to do this? We'd sure like to have you do this. And I said, why, sure, I'd like to do that. It wasn't until I walked in here a year later and I thought, my goodness, what did I get myself into? So I've always had this problem of perception, you know, about uh, having forethought. You know, I mean, I act on the moment. That's the way I'm wired. For me not to react what I need right now, what I want right now is very difficult for me. And I do it better. But occasionally someone will hit me in the right spot, like the... You know, to be the head of one of these big major conferences. Well, of course, it sounded wonderful. Right now, it feels terrifying. You know, and it's just another one of those situations like, my goodness, you did it again, you dummy. Uh, actually, it'll be a good experience for me. The other thing is, is that for some reason, in spite of absolutely no evidence to back it up, is that I still think I know best. You know, and that comes at me 10 million different ways. Uh, you know, if the world would act the way that I would do it, if everyone would let me put my little spin on things, everyone would be so much better off. And then when things don't go my way, then I get devastated. I feel I'm never going to recover from it. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. And yet if I look back on the history of that, if I if things had gone the way that I wanted them to do my whole life, I'd be dead. There's no question about it. So, in fact... The things that I have perceived to be the worst things that have happened in my life, in the long run, have always proven to be the best things. Now, I can sit there and intellectually tell you that, but the next time something else happens, I'm going to react the same way. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me, you know, and thank goodness that I have a program like this to help me through this, and I have people and friends that can say, Jim, you're a lunatic, you know, chill, sit down, shut up. Uh, no, that's not necessarily true. But that the, the 12 steps of this program has given, uh, you know, I'd like, to, can, I'd like to, I consider myself a lunatic, you know, and that by incorporating the 12 steps in this program and real simple things like before I act on things, when I know exactly what I need to do, don't do it. Wait till tomorrow. You know, right there, that simple thing right there, about 60% of my life's problems are eliminated because in the morning, no matter how how sure I know that I need to do right now, that I know, you know, matter of fact, one of the things that one of my favorites is, is I've had these situations, and I'm sure no one else has, where I get to a situation, I know exactly what to do. You know, something isn't going my way, and I come up with a solution. As a matter of fact, this time, I am so sure that I'm right, that I'm not even going to bother anyone else, especially my sponsor. So I'm just going to go ahead and go jump right into action, and I'll take care of this sucker. So, boy, I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times that I've learned to regret that. So the more I'm around here, the more I learn to, to follow the, you know, there's a reason why that we have sponsors. There's a reason why we sponsor other people. There's a, there's a reason why we keep going to these meetings. Because we forget. We have terrible forgetters. I'm a forgetter. You know, and I need to be reminded probably more than most. That's why, you know, as I've been involved in this process, is that my commitment to my own recovery has increased. It hasn't decreased. I do more now because I know that I need to do it, because I want to do it, than when I was forced to do it. So let me back up a little bit and just qualify real quickly. Um, just to give you the magnitude of the way that I that I loved opiates, you know, 
I liked a lot of things, but I loved opiates. Um, Doug Talbot and David Smith were expert witnesses in a in a trial for a it was a plastic surgeon in Detroit. Probably someone that Tom Haynes missed. I don't know how that had happened. Anyway, this guy had uh, some intractable pain, and he was taking uh, an enormous number of uh, Lortab, or Vicodin at the time. So he got arrested and was serving a, a, a four-year federal prison sentence because the DEA said that no one could take this many. You know, that he would be dead from liver failure. No one's liver could take this much acetaminophen and live. So Doug and Dave were saying, well, because they were going to say that this is not necessarily the case, that, you know, if you're not a heavy drinker, that there's alternate pathways and you don't get the severe liver complications. So they thought there and they says, well, who do we know that's taking more of these things than that guy? And instantly, Jimbo! <laughs> so... Uh, I come from a long line of alcoholics. You know, my father was an alcoholic, but uh, no one said so because he was a, uh, an executive for Ford Motor Company, so he wasn't an alcoholic, he was an executive. His father was an alcoholic. My, you know, grandfather wasn't, his grandfather was an alcoholic. My mother's side is full of alcoholics and addicts. Uh, my mother used to put uh, ice in her champagne so she wouldn't get drunk. Uh, she takes a little Xanax, you know, and, uh, you know, I'd say things like, Mom, after I got sober, Mom, don't you think you should stop taking these, these Valium and this, you know, this Xanax? Don't you know that that's addictive? And she says, it's not addictive. She says, I've been taking them for years. <laughs> so that's kind of my, uh, I have, I have uncles that, uh, that said that, uh, what are you and your brother, you know, out there, you're, uh, belong to some cult out in California that AA doesn't work, you know, even though they've been going to detox about every 18 months for 30 years. Uh, you know. And, and I've been able to, to stay sober by the grace of God since the first time, the first meeting that I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and um, it's just kind of amazing. I I was one of those, uh, those uh, I guess I used to call it type A alcoholics. You know, when you take your first drink, you're off to the races. I believe that I was, uh, that my genetic load is like immense, you know, and that I was an alcoholic way before that I took the first drink. Um, I think that as a child, I had like an abnormal amount of fear, I guess, um, so that when I started drinking and using that, it worked for me. I got in an um, enormous amount of uh, trouble immediately when I started drinking. I ended up in juvenile hall all the time. Anyway, I don't want to go too much through uh, my using, uh, but let me just promise you that it started with alcohol. Uh, the last thing I drank was alcohol. Uh, and there was a lot of narcotics in the middle, and I felt that uh, <clears throat> that I that it really weren't the, that alcohol. I knew alcohol was bad, but I thought that I could take some drugs. Not that I didn't drink like a pig when I drank, but uh, for some reason I I thought that that uh, narcotics were okay as long as I just used drugs. I was okay. I was an intelligent guy. I knew how to control this thing. After all, I was a doctor, um, and uh, it shouldn't be a problem at all. Anyway, I had a number of problems, and I, I actually continued to be successful. And one of the things was that I, I knew early on my own sense of denial that, that alcohol was was not got me in trouble. And then, you know, first it was pot, and then it was everything else. And um, you know, it just kept escalating, escalating. I kept crossing lines and lines and lines that I that I, I wouldn't, uh, I knew wasn't uh, that I would never do. You know, uh, of course, I was using cocaine back in the 17s before it was addictive. 
And um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, there's a couple things. I was a, I'm a dentist, or I was a dentist. Uh, I I choose not to practice dentistry. I, I can, you know. I did have my licenses revoked, you know, and I got all that back. Uh, but uh, my compulsion to use, and in the end, you know, I started using cocaine because alcohol gave me too bad of hangovers. And I found that uh, Percodan were a little bit easier on me, you know. And then it was ended up just taking a uh, monstrous, you know. I was taking, uh, at the end, I was taking 70 Percocet a day and about a half a gram of uh, methamphetamine just to take stay awake. Um, and uh, my life was miserable. Uh, I got in trouble with some Demerol once before. And the Demerol for me was, the problem wasn't the Demerol, it was that in the, in the States we had these bulk order forms. And that, uh, you know, it was those damn forms that were causing the problem. And if I didn't have these forms, I wouldn't be using all this Demerol. So I threw them away. But my compulsion to use by that time was so great that, and I usually go to schools and tell this, and uh, we do this thing and, and to tell our story, and they get to adjudicate us about what they do to us. And every time I, I tell this, you know, they always get revoked. It's like, well, the rest of these guys, you know, uh, we think that you need to be monitored, and we'd eventually let you practice. But Dr. Tracy, there's just no help, for, no hope for him. We would revoke his license forever. But um, what I what I shared was that my compulsion got so big for uh, narcotics that um, I swore off the Demerol. But I was working in a in a clinic where they had an oral surgeon that came in every Saturday morning with his little drug kit. And when he would walk in the door, I swear I could smell the Demerol. It was like I could smell it. And the only thought that I'd have in my mind was, I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. This is like 9 in the morning. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. 10 o'clock. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. 11 o'clock. Not going to do it. Not another thought in my mind. I mean, total preoccupation. And all of a sudden I go, oh my God, he's at lunch. And I would run in there with some big turkey baster and um, suck up as much of the Demerol as I could, quickly inject it to get a big hematoma, um, and then go back and fill his uh, vial full of tap water. And then uh, feel, and then watch him use it on patients in the afternoon and stand there and watch him, you know. And I'm telling you, I felt so much shame. And it wasn't that I didn't have, uh, you know, high standards for myself. You know, I violated everything that was sacred. You know, and I felt, I mean, I can't tell you how humiliated I felt there. And I thought, I am never, ever, ever going to do this again. And you know what? The next week, he'd come in and the same thing would happen. Exactly the same thing would happen every time until finally I got caught. But I was smart and I kept uh, moving and kept one step ahead of the DEA. And uh, the other thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about how, how crazy I was is, I don't know if this is normal, but... I was practicing one evening, and uh, somebody called me up. I had a friend of his that was in the Hells Angels that wanted to uh, needed to see me, and uh, so I said, "Sure, bring him on in." So he comes in, and this guy looked like Frankenstein. I mean, he had probably about 120 pounds of leather on, one of these huge beards, you know, and earrings, and a knee brace, and a limp, and he growled, you know, and. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm a scared of needles, Doc. And uh, and I said, okay. You know, I said, uh, I'll be gentle. And he said, I need some teeth pulled. And I said, okay, we can handle that. So he's about ready to get in the chair, and he says, just a second. And he pulls out some thing of white powder, takes a couple of snarfs, and goes, ah, okay, I'm ready. It's okay. 
But the part that I look at for myself was on the way out. I don't know if this is normal, but I went up to him and I said, Hey, uh, he wouldn't have any extra of that stuff, would you? <laughs> so uh, I try a little bit, and the next thing you know, he's at my house with me, and he's my new best friend. <laughs> and uh, I knew that cocaine was bad, you know, but I felt that this crank, as they called it, made me a little more focused and clear. Anyway, um, what happened to me was, uh, for no apparent reason, um, and I don't know, you know, why they did this, I was sitting there practicing like any good guy, and for no apparent reason, 21 federal agents descended in my office one night. <laughs> and uh, uh, they said that, uh, well, they said that, uh, that they knew that I was involved with uh, some cocaine, and uh, I had two patients in my chair. One was a pot grower, and the other guy was a was a biker guy. So uh, the last thing that they said was, they said I said was, I'm going to get busted. Anyway, so they chained me to my uh, desk in my office, and uh, they said that you know you need to uh, uh, you need to work with this. You get all these people depending on you. So they turned out, went out of the room, and I had a bottle of about 20 Vicodin in there, and I just took them all chewed them up, and, and I thought it was going to get a little tense. Anyway, uh, so uh, they re- they arrested me, you know, and um, uh, they asked me if I wanted to work with them, and I told them no, and that uh, they don't know who they're messing with, you know, the standard stuff. Uh, so I, uh, but how, how God works in your life, and, and the truth is, is that the fact that I am a professional is really what saved my life, because my denial was just malignant, you know, it's just terrible. Anyway, so they put me in a drunk tank, and, uh, I had to have this one special attorney. There's only one attorney in the world that could, that I felt could save me. You know, I had to have this one guy. So I called him up, you know, and I said, Robert, you gotta get me out of here. You gotta get me out of here. And I said, this is awful. And he says, things will get better. And I said, yeah, they'll get better. You get me out of here, they'll get a lot better. So, uh, and I didn't know that he was in the program. You know, but I had to have this one guy. He was, and I, this is what I said. I said, Robert is the only guy that can save my life. So what I did was, uh, uh, he came down the next time, a couple days later, and, and I went from about, uh, 70 Percocet a day, to zero with nothing. And uh just and the and this the shame and humiliation and that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that I felt in that jail was was worse than any withdrawal from any opiate could have been. I hardly even noticed it. I had the chills and the little diarrhea, but that didn't you know, that did not even didn't wasn't even enough to even complain about. So he comes in and say, you mean they had me shackled at the wrists and ankles and, you know, and uh, he said that uh, they told me that uh, that they're not going to let you go, that they feel that you're a public threat to public, you're a threat to public safety and that you have a bad drug problem. And he said, do you think that you have a drug problem? And I assured him that I didn't, <laughs> that I had a legal problem and that if he would do his job, that I wouldn't have any problems. Okay, and um, and I was marching around there with an orange jumpsuit with my Italian loafers. <laughs> I even had one person visit me, and uh, this girl I knew, and she was giving me a bunch of crap, you know. And then finally, I said, you know, this is no time for you to give, be giving me a bunch of garbage. 
I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to my cell with my friends. <laughs> and I did. Well, I showed her, too. Anyway, so the next time Robert comes back to see me, he brings a big book. And he says, and, and, and uh, he says, you know, he says, I've carefully reviewed your case, and I have come to the conclusion that you're screwed. <laughs> That's a legal term. Uh, and he said, the only hope that you have, he says, is to admit that you're a drug addict. And he says, and I want you to carry this book everywhere you go because it'll look good. And I said, and I, that really hit to me. It was the first thing I ever heard. Look good. I can look good. So I said, okay, Robert, I'll carry this book everywhere you want me to go. And I said, but I'm not going to read the damn thing. And that's what I did. I carried that book everywhere I went. And I remember now, they're asking me to go into one of those H&I meetings, and I refused. I sat outside holding my book. Okay, so then the, the fog was starting to lift, so I was starting to that, and not for any good motive, but I was trying to figure a way out of this thing, like any good addict. So what I did was um, I called up the dental board, and I knew that they had this dental, you know, impaired dentist program, you know, and I figured, well, it was diversion. I thought diversion meant get out of trouble. So uh, I called them up and told them I might have had a little small drug problem, and uh uh, that I thought that I might need to get in this program. In reality, I was thinking that I wasn't sick enough to get in the program. Okay, so they told me I, that I probably would, and I had to do an int- I had to meet with some psychologist. So I don't know, but I told somebody the damnedest story he'd ever heard. I afraid they wouldn't let me in, so I told him everything I had ever done. This guy didn't say a word. His eyes were this big, and his mouth was open. You know. So needless to say, I got in the program. And none of the, and, and what would happen was is they were threatening me with, uh, uh, 200 counts of felony distribution of, uh, federal felony distribution of controlled substance. It was about 1800 years if you added up. So, uh, they offered me to settle for, to plead bargain to two counts of distribution of a controlled substance, two prescriptions of Vicodin to myself if I felt, took those guilty things, charges. You know, and which I reluctantly did because I wasn't willing to to risk the thing. But I could not imagine that God would want to send me to jail doing as good as I was doing. Anyway, I was 42 days in jail and in the diversion program. And I don't tell this too many places, but they actually let me do an outpatient program, something I would never allow anyone to do. Um, So uh, I started uh, with my attorney. You know, he told me where the uh, where the meetings were. He called it the Lycra Spandex meeting. That's the one I needed to go to. You know, all the, everything was for the right reason, you know. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I was going to go to meetings, and I got this next idea that, you know what, if they see what how good I can do, I said, certainly they'll come to their senses. So what my plan was is that I was going to do this recovery thing better than they've ever seen anyone do ever before. I will go to so many meetings that I am going to dazzle them with my footwork. So, and sure, they'll come to their senses and drop all this nonsense. So what I did was uh, I was having to go to um, uh, the diversion meetings. In addition to all the outpatient program, the evening programs, and the uh, the diversion meetings that I had to go to, I went to, like, the first month, I went to 74 meetings. And I was going to three and four a day, you know. And what ended up happening for me is somewhere along that line, I screwed myself. Because about 60 to 90 days of doing that, I actually started feeling better. You know, so for for absolutely not the right motives, things started to change. They put me in the box. 
you know, they sent the body and the mind started to follow, maybe a little slower in my case. So um, what ended up happening was uh, the next significant thing was uh, this, this uh, they had mandatory sentence guidelines in California, well, for whole United States. And that what if you did pled guilty to this, 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 you go over to the right, you look down at the bottom, boom, and that's what you get. And I was going to get like three years in federal prison. And uh, and at that time, the judge could not sentence outside of those. And about this time, I was having a real hard time believing that God wanted me to go to prison, and uh, as good as I was doing. And um, uh, so I was, I had this, uh, I was in this this group that I was in, it was all men, and this guy told me that I had to take a third step in front of the group, you know, and I told him that I would not do that, you know, that that is, you know, I am not going to do, I'm not going to pray a bunch of, in front of a bunch of men. I'm just not going to do that. And he said, okay, well, you can leave. We're going to dismiss you from the program. And I, then I knew, then it was pre, prison, loss of license, of any hope that I had, you know, that I didn't, I didn't stand a chance. So, uh, I ended up taking that third step prayer in front of those men that night. And, uh, for about a nanosecond, I came to believe that I was going to be okay if I continued to follow this path. And what happened was I got up the next morning and the mandatory sentence guidelines for the whole, for the district that I was in of the whole United States was repealed as being unconstitutional. And I ended up getting sentenced to probation. Of course, I had a year of house arrest and about a million other things, a year of drug treatment and stuff. And then about six weeks after I got sentenced, those guidelines went back into effect. And they've been like that ever since. So immediately I thought, yes, this stuff works. <laughs> I can tell you 13 years later, that was another one of those defining moments in my life because since that time, my life has not been the same. Since that time, I've had an obligation, you know, to carry the message to others. Since that time, I've, my, my, whole, my whole deal around the recovery has shifted. You know, that wasn't the only shift that took place, but I can tell you that, that the thing that with me is that, is that uh, because I know so much and I always know what was uh, so good for me, the fact that someone finally came in and took away the decision of what I needed to do, took that decision, that choice away from me for five years, and I was told what to do, and by doing those things, my life changed. When I was almost ready to get out of those things, you know, I went from a place to when I was had 60 days clean, I went to my sponsor, and I said, uh, I said, uh, you know, I said, uh, when this is all over, when I get out of the diversion program and I get off of federal probation and I get off of this and I get off of that, I had like four different regulatory agencies watching me. I said, I can smoke pot, can't I? <laughs> and he says, well, you can if you want to. And I said, geez, thanks, Larry. I feel so much better. I felt totally relieved. I remember that. He still calls me up and laughs about that every once in a while. You still want to smoke pot? You know, And but I had genuine relief at that time. But what happened was when uh, when the five years was up, um, when the five years was up, right before that, all of a sudden I had one of these insights, and I think that it takes four to five years to get that, was that I, I reflected back and I saw how much my life has changed and that I came to this realization that, geez, this has worked so well, maybe I'll just keep doing this. You know, what a concept. And it really took, you know, over four years for me to get that, to grasp that, difficult concept, you know, that my life got better, geez, maybe I'll just keep doing the same thing. So, you know, um, the diversion program and the recovery has, uh, you know, the, those programs have changed my life. 
um, uh, after I got out of uh, out of those things, I got involved with uh, volunteering, you know, on well-being committees. You know, I ended up working with Doug Talbot, which was a, an amazing thing for me. Uh, I ended up running the physicians program in Nevada. I ended up starting a program with Betty Ford. You know, I consult for other places. I do interventions. Um, you know, my life has has just gotten so good that it's unbelievable. But I tell you, when I when I left dentistry, you know, recovery has given me the courage to do things that I couldn't do before. I was terrified to leave dentistry, even though I realized that I didn't like it anymore. I didn't have the passion. I had more passion for recovery than I did drilling holes in teeth. That's just me, you know. And and uh, uh, I think recovery has given me the courage to take chances and to do things and follow my dreams, you know. And things don't always work out, you know. But the bottom line is, as long as I have this this program, I'm going to be okay. I know that today. I know that today that I'm going to be okay. Not every moment of every day, but overall I know that I'm going to be okay and it's given me courage to do all kinds of things that I couldn't before. When I uh, started working in the field, I made a commitment to myself that any, every day that I work in the field that I'm going to go to a meeting. So I started doing a 90 and 90 in 1997 and I still do a 90 and 90. I start off my day with a meeting in the desert. We go to, I go to a 6 a.m. sunrise celebrators meeting, and I'm there every day that I'm in the desert, you know. And what it does is that sometimes I wake up, and, man, the noise is awful, you know. And uh, what it does, it helps me get centered. It helps me do that third step, you know, and uh, uh, every, on a daily basis. And if I can at least start off with the goal of having a good day, guess what? I have better days. And, uh, you know, I've had disappointments, I've had elation, you know, in the last year I've known the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Bottom line is, is that what I have is that no matter what my problem is, I know that my answer is always the same. What I need to do is focus on my recovery because everything else is going to take care of itself. You know, and all these things that I keep thinking that I know best, I don't know anything. You know, and all I need to do is to show up and try to turn it over to God and my life is going to be a lot better. Thanks for letting me share. Wednesday night we started this spiritual odyssey. This is the last 30th doctor to get up here and to share his journey. We also had four others that are chairing the early bird meetings, and so I uh, want to uh, introduce Dave. Hi, everybody. My name is David, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I don't know how I feel about being the last speaker on the program. When Al asked me to uh, to speak, of course, I said yes, because that's a commitment I've made uh, to my recovery. <clears throat> when I found out I was the last speaker, two thoughts simultaneously went through my brain. Uh, the first was that... Uh, uh, they just couldn't think of anybody else that came down to the last of the list, and that I happened to be a name that somebody remembered might be in recovery. Uh, the second was, of course, that, uh, and it was simultaneous with the first, uh, was that they thought so much of me that we they wanted somebody here that would dynamically take you out, like the Baptists would say, on your road to Jesus. I don't know where I fit in there. I know that that is a pattern that I've actually established in my life, somewhere between insecurity and grandiosity. When I was listening to the other speakers speak, actually something came to mind that happened way before recovery and way before I had identified myself as having a drinking problem. I was selected to participate in a speech contest. 
and uh, actually I was told that I had to do that and, and uh, because they didn't have anybody else and this particular contest was extemporaneous speaking and I'd never done that before but what they do is hand you a list of topics you pick a topic you you study in seclusion and then they call you to go up and compete against other people who have done exactly the same thing well for some reason I got out of my preparation time a little bit early and I sat outside the door as some of the contestants were giving their speeches uh, they were so damn good that I left and never never gave my speech so I had that feeling sitting over here I must tell you my sobriety date is March the 9th 1992 uh, for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, my sponsor's name is is uh, Dick B. Uh, in real life, Dick B. puts together HMO products. One of my sponsees' names is John W. John W. is a malpractice attorney. That just goes to show you that my God has a real sense of humor. <laughs> I can get rid of my resentments very quickly by just praying for my sponsor and sponsee. You know, this, this, uh, I'm a pure alcoholic, uh, pretty much as pure as they come. I'm of the age where that was the available drug. That's the one I chose. That's the one I liked, and that worked for me for, for a long, long time. I can't tell you any issues about family of origin. Uh, I was adopted. Uh, my poor parents that picked me out out of love had no idea what they were getting into. You can imagine their confusion for the past 54 years as they've watched what's happened. I can remember my first spiritual experience. It happened when I was 15 years old. That's when I had my very, very first drink. And that was the drink, and you've heard it here from several of the speakers, that was the drink that transformed me from an insecure, inadequate, self-conscious, short, stocky individual into something short of, just barely short of Superman. You know, I immediately became six foot four. My shoulders broadened, my waist got thinner. I became articulate, I became witty, I became proper, I became desirable to me and to other people. And so that was my first spiritual experience. And it worked very, very well for me. My first sexual experience was, of course, associated with alcohol. I was the guy, if you listen to the speeches all this morning, I was the guy that had that uh, cherry-flavored vodka and plied her with a little bit and me with a lot, and I got the courage, and she didn't have any resistance, and that's the way that deal works. <laughs> and I thought it was great. I thought I was really, really into something. And I was a pretty pleasant drunk. Uh, I was the guy that was in charge of putting together the parties. I was in charge of all this business and that business. I, was, I happened to be a relatively good student. As I matriculated through school, I, I had various uh, activities that I could participate in that I was reasonably successful at. I went to medical school, and of course everybody was very pride, prideful about that uh, that particular thing. I, I drank. I drank, uh, of course, all the rest of the way from 15 years old until I until I stopped. But I didn't get in much trouble with that. I only had 13 car wrecks in the first two years I owned a car. Uh, but you know, for some reason, nobody ever found out that there was alcohol associated with that. And they happened to be minor incidents and minor accidents, and I certainly had no concept. I just had bad luck. And I went to medical school, and uh, just right over here, a couple of miles over here, and, and uh, you know, I'd always wanted to be a doctor, and I did reasonably well uh, throughout school. We had uh, a group of us that went to medical school together. We called ourselves the Corps. 
there were five of us that ran together. We played golf together. We we studied together. We drank together. We caroused together. We did all of the things that, that you do at that age. Became very very good friends. And and what happened was that that uh, they there was an annex being built onto the medical school at that time. And they moved all the students between my freshman and my sophomore year into this new annex. Since I had a year of affiliation with people, we were able to pick our partners in these little 16-man cubicles. So, of course, the Corps went as a group into a cubicle where we could lock the door. We all had microscope cases, and what we did with those was store our whiskey in those microscope cases. It was a wonderful, wonderful existence. Uh, I haven't kept up with, uh, with the Corps, uh, but I can tell you that three of the five are dead, <clears throat> all from this disease. And I feel very fortunate to not be with them. Well, I finished medical school. By this time, I was married, and I had one child, and I moved to Phoenix. And I remember crossing the, the mountain there into Phoenix, and I pulled in to get, a, get something to eat. Oklahoma was dry at that time. And, and I pulled in, and we ordered something to eat, and they said, would you like something to drink? And I said, like what? And they said, well, margarita. I said, well, I'll try it. And I did. And I thought I had gone to heaven. Uh, that was a wet state, a very wet state, and my, my drinking was able to escalate. I finished my internship and my residency in orthopedic surgery there, and, and uh, the last episode of that particular residency, well, let me backtrack and say that in 1973, during my first year of residency, I met a man by the name of Harrison B. I call him Corky. Corky was supposed to speak early today. I'd invited him down here, but for some reason he couldn't come. I got very, very remorseful about my drinking at one point, and I asked Corky, who was a year ahead of me, and I said, how come you never go drinking with the rest of us? And he said, you're not going to believe this? I'm an alcoholic. And I said, you're right. I don't believe it. You have way too much fun to be an alcoholic. That's the reason he didn't go. So this particular evening when I got very remorseful, I called Corky, and I said, uh, I think I've got an alcohol problem. This is 73. If you do the math, uh, that's 19 years before I got sober. Uh, and Corky said, well, I'll come over and talk with you if you're serious. But, you know, we're going to have to pour out all your whiskey. I said, that's fine. He came over. He poured out all my whiskey. He took me to a meeting. He gave me a big book. And I loved the stories at the end of the book. I like stories that have good endings. Beyond that, I did no participation whatsoever in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I did quit drinking for about eight months. And i got to tell you, it was wonderful. Some minor resentment uh, started me drinking again, and I was off to the races. In the residency, uh, last party, I managed to to take an alternate route home to avoid the police. I uh, found myself doing a one-and-a-half with a full twist into the Arizona Canal. Uh, this was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I didn't think I was going to live through that, and it just so happened uh, that some four-year-old girl couldn't sleep that night and happened to be out on her front porch and saw the wreck. Once again, I was rescued by a God that I, I really had turned my back on. Well, I got out of that deal and I came to Oklahoma and I faded the heat for that uh, that, that DUI. And I transformed my practice uh, into my God. I became very successful very quickly. And the drinking sort of moderated while my lust for other things uh, escalated. My behavior was the same. I was behaving big and I was feeling little. After a couple more DUIs, well, I say that I got into this program by process of elimination. 
that's really partially true. I, you know, I eliminated the job. I eliminated a wife. I eliminated a family. I eliminated several automobiles. I eliminated my prosperity. Uh, so moving fast forward, I, I went, found myself uh, divorced, uh, broke, confused, and decided to do what any father of three children would normally do, take my children to Disneyland or Disney World in Florida. Off we took the wonderful Disney World. I wasn't going to drink in their presence. It was a very hot, ugly day. I was nervous, anxious, and shaky. I took a ride. They had a strobe light, and I had a seizure. And they pulled me off of this cart, I guess. I woke up on a park bench, and there were four guys standing around. Each of them had on a white coat. They were ambulance attendants, but I thought they were bartenders. And as they stood over me, I looked at them and I said, no thanks, I don't think I need any more. <laughs> it was the first hint that perhaps I really, really had gotten to a place that I never wanted to be. You know, I recognized that I had a drinking problem. I think I would have admitted that I was an alcoholic to you. But I don't think at that time I was able to admit it to myself. And I called my friend, the neurologist, and explained that I'd had this seizure. He said, don't drink anymore. What I heard him say was, never let your blood level drop too low. So I modified my drinking so that I could do it 24 hours a day, if need be. But internally, I was so miserable and so scared that I finally asked for help from, from some people in this program. And I made my first trip to Atlanta the TRC. And I really, really, really wanted to be sober. I really, really, really wanted what you people had. And I really, really, really thought that I was ready to go to any lengths to do that. That's all what I wanted. What I didn't have the ability to do was recognize and commune with a God of my understanding <clears throat> that cared about me. And I got out of that treatment facility. Now, this is going to sound ridiculous, but actually in, in 28 days, they had a, a, a new program they were trying out there where they'd take certain guys, I guess, that looked good and let us go home so that we could see whether actually a guy could do it with short-term treatment. Actually, it lasted a while. I, I got my sponsor, and I started going to meetings, and I didn't drink, and things were okay, and I felt good. In October of that year, that was in, the, I guess, uh, May. In October of that year, my eldest son was involved in a, uh, a very serious car wreck, and he had a head injury. <clears throat> and he was in a coma for like three months. And although I had been talk, talking about the tools of the program, I didn't trust that this program could get rid of that pain. I, I didn't consciously acknowledge that, but internally. So I wasn't going to drink. I had made that commitment. I was in the worst pain I had ever had in my entire life, internally. And it was a real quandary. Someone accused someone else in the emergency room or um, the ICU was smelling like alcohol. I thought they were talking about me. I'm pretty self-centered. So the next morning on my way to work, a nice, cool, rainy day, I stopped and picked up a bottle of Listerine, and I'm telling this story for Daryl Smith, 
picked up a bottle of Listerine on my way to work, and I was just going to swig out so nobody would ever accuse me of smelling like alcohol. And I say it was raining, and I took that bottle, and I put it up there, and I took a swig of that stuff, and I didn't want to roll the window and spit it out, so I just swallowed it, and boom. David was home. David was comfortable. David was back where he was supposed to be. David could handle this tragedy. David could handle the patient load. David could handle everything else. That was another spiritual experience. But I'm not really dumb. I, I know there's alcohol in that. And I know that, uh, that that was what was making the difference. And the guilt began to overwhelm me. I'd drive around in that big red Cadillac with that hot bottle of Listerine under the seat. With $500 in one pocket. And I'd reach under there and take those nips just like it was, just like I had done before. Finally, the, uh, the jig was up. I think, I think my wife who was here had a little something to do with it. We don't talk much about interventions anymore. Uh, but for whatever reason, people noticed that I was acting a bit strange, and I guess that Listerine really does metabolize, and you do have a little odor to you. And so I was approached, and, uh, and the jig was up, and I've never been so relieved in my entire life. They asked me to go back to Atlanta again, and I did. And this time I stayed quite a while. And they worked and they worked and they worked with me about all these things, these steps. They talked to me about the spiritual part of the recovery. And I was anxious and I was willing and I wanted that. They didn't really discharge me then. They, uh, <laughs> I'd been there for some, somewhat over four months and, and uh, my mother came down with leukemia and she'd been hospitalized and they said, you know, we don't think we can actually endorse you if you go home uh, in terms of getting your practice. But we can't do anything else with you here. Why don't you go on? And I went home and that's when miracles started happening in my life. <clears throat> first thing, the first order of business, of course, was to, to get involved in AA. You've heard people talk about still doing 90 and 90. Uh, my sponsor told me, I asked him, I said, Dick, do I do 90 and 90? He said, you just keep going every day till I tell you. He said, you call me every day. I called him every day for three years. I'm sure he was the happiest man alive when I quit calling him every day. I, I, I was a little bit willing to do what people had told me. I felt that there was this this need to to get on with my amends. I'd done the fourth and fifth step, six and seven. Now it was time for me to talk with my mother right seriously because things weren't looking too hot. So I, she was in the hospital. I made arrangements to meet with her in the hospital uh, alone. And I sat down with her and I apologized, of course, that we had to do it under these circumstances. But I told her it was very important for me to be able to clear some things away and to be able to honestly visit with her. And I put on my best... Uh, my best speech in the world, man. I went through the amends that you wouldn't believe. And my sweet little mother was sitting there and she listened to all that. And I finally finished. She looked up with those beautiful blue eyes and she said, You left some stuff out. <laughs> that bothered me. 
it bothered me until I was able to take myself out of the picture and realize the importance of my recovery to that sweet lady. She didn't do that for her. She did that for me. First time that I'd recognized that lady for what she is. Uh, There was a real, a real spiritual experience for me. And it contributed to my belief in this God that I was willing to define and relate with. Started my road to recovery, but the road really wasn't finished up. The road wasn't completed. The road wasn't even understood. Until about three months later. And uh, my sponsor, my, my work was not real busy at that point. Uh, I was struggling a bit. And my sponsor suggested it would be a good idea for me to make a trip to a little city about 30 miles east of here to essentially beg two physicians uh, to send me their, their patients. Uh, since my sponsor told me to do it, I agreed to do it. And I rode over with a lady who all the way over talked about how much she hated her alcoholic father. I'd planned to fill up the gas tank on the way over, but she just wouldn't shut up long enough for me to you know, do that. I tried to defend us poor alcoholics as best I could, but she was pretty set in her ways. And we got there for lunch, and we were supposed to meet these two doctors. And one of the docs who was a partner came running into this uh, cafeteria, and he said, we got to do something about Mark. And the lady that was with me, the administrator person, said, what are you talking about? He said, well, Mark is drinking, and he's using drugs, and he's running around town with a, a loaded gun, and he's left his wife and two kids, and he's just I'm just sick and tired of him. He's just an addict and an alcoholic, and we've got to do something about him. We're going to have to do an intervention or something. Now, I'm sitting there starting to you know, get a little nervous. And uh, she asked if uh, they'd made any arrangements. He said, yes, we're going to have Mark here at 1 o'clock this afternoon, and we've got all the ER people. We've got the nurses lined up. We've got a whole inter- intervention ready. I don't know what we're going to do with him after that. And by this time, I'm looking up saying, God, it ain't my time. I can't be involved in this stuff. And he said, but do you know anywhere, does anybody know anywhere you can send these people? I said, okay, God, I give up. I pulled out my billfold and I said, yeah, here are a couple of numbers in Atlanta uh, that I had. And I happen to know these people and they would be happy to uh, help you out if you can get him there. He said, I thought you knew something about this intervention stuff. Will you run it for us? I don't know anything about it. So I did what any good alcoholic should do. I called my sponsor. I said, excuse me a minute. I called my sponsor. He wasn't in. I called my good friend, Billy S., uh, who's not here today. should be. Anyway, I said, Billy. And I told him the situation. He said, sounds to me like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. I said, thanks, Billy. What do we do? He said, you get two tickets, and if you're not busy, you go with him to Atlanta. He said, you get him on a flight this afternoon if he's willing to go. I said, Billy, the guy's huge. He's carrying around a gun. He's angry. <laughs> he said, yeah, these things can be a little tricky. So I went back and said, sure, I'll be happy to help you with this intervention. And we waited and we waited and we waited. Now, we got two airline tickets uh, at uh, 6 o'clock 
to leave from Oklahoma City. Uh, we're 45 minutes away, at least. At 5 o'clock, Mark decides he's going to stroll in for his 1 o'clock appointment. Now, short as, as he starts to come in, the announcement is made. He's in the parking lot. He's coming in. God took over. <clears throat> I said, why don't you all go somewhere else and let me talk to him? And we went in his office. And I said, Mark, I'm here to beg for your patience. He said, that's great, man. I said, but before I can ask you to send me patience, there's some things I need to tell you about myself. And I proceeded to give him the uh, short version of where I'd been and how much better things had gotten. And he said, man, that's really great. I'm proud of somebody like you. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely 100%. And I said, well, there's a little catch. I said, there are a whole bunch of people that love you a lot and they're sitting out here. And they think you might have the same problem that I do. I don't know if you do or you don't. But I can promise you one thing. If you do, you don't have to hurt like this anymore. And he started to cry. And then I started to cry. He kissed his wife, put four packages of cigarettes in his pocket, and got in that Jeep that was out of gas. <laughs> and you know what? I knew it was going to be okay. And we drove. And we got him to the airport. They held the plane for one guy to get on. I didn't have to go with him. They held the plane. He was the last guy. I walked straight out of my car down the ramp onto the plane. And he showed up in Atlanta. Now, when I tell this story, everybody says, what happened to him? I mean, I'm talking about me for crying out loud. <laughs> the last I saw him, he's still sober. But that's not the important part of this story. The important part of this story <laughs> is that when I got home, I told my wife that for the first time I had been given something valuable enough to give away. The ability to do something of worth that I can't orchestrate, I can't design, and I can't make happen. I felt the power of the God of my understanding at that moment. And I haven't let go of it. I have to have it. Life is not always wonderful in recovery. But I heard many times today the same thing. That is, it's going to be all right. And I believe that today. It's going to be all right. I had a <clears throat> diagnosis of a cancer of the throat about a year ago. And uh, when they were setting me up for surgery, they said, uh, now, here's the deal. We're going to turn this big thing and we're going to do all that stuff. I didn't care about that. They said, the trick is... When you wake up, you may not be able to talk. Or if you do, it'll really sound funny, which might be an improvement. Uh, and you know, after railing against that a little bit, which is pretty normal, I knew that somehow it'd be all right. Had a recurrence of that with a couple of nodes. So they said, well, okay, now we're going to have to do a little modified radical neck dissection. I didn't like it but I know it's going to be okay. 
I've been given a gift that very, very few people can get. And today is enough for me. I owe that to people like you that sit in rooms like these that are willing to take the time and the effort and the energy to help me. I owe that to a God who's let me sometimes in retrospect see the magnificence of his vision for me. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Thank you.